Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 137. Some of the rumors going around about the UN being moved over to Dubai, you'll be hearing from me again. Well, you're hearing from me again this morning. Psalm 137, we'll read it. We're sort of uh, disciplined in uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse study. And so when we come across Psalm 137, that deals with the future judgment of uh, Babylon and current events, I decided to change my notes, and so here we go. Are you ready? Good. Psalm 137, Tears in Exile. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive, they required of us a song. And those who plundered us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. And if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem when they said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy shall be he who repays you as you have served us. Happy shall be the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And you go, what kind of a psalm is that? It's very, very unique. Well, I'm going to read something here with verses 8 and 9. I'm going to have you turn over to the book of Jeremiah. And I'm grateful for men's prayer. Because yesterday we were in Jeremiah, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And uh, I think before I say anything else, we read in verse uh, 18, 8 verse 18, And let me just tell you the ministry that Jeremiah had. This whole book is written by a man with a broken heart, with a broken-hearted message. He found absolutely no joy in the word that God had given him to give to the people in Jerusalem that they were going to be destroyed, they were going to be taken captive. And so we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And um, I'll confess to you this morning that I identify with the message I'm about to give because it's going to be very similar uh, as Jeremiah would be giving a message to the people in Jerusalem before they were destroyed by Babylon. So as you look at verse 18, it's sort of personal to me, but I want to give you a little feeling uh, where I'm at this morning. And it says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Then I want you to go to chapter 9, verse 24, where it says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, notice, exercising loving kindness, and then judgment right after that, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord." Basically, as we go back to Psalm 137 now, basically, Psalm 137 is, if you were here on Wednesday night, we call it 
an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory psalm or prayer is actually one that's praying for vengeance or justice to be taken upon the Babylonians. Um, Let me just read something I took from one commentary this week. The historical book of the Old Testament uh, does not record the history of the nation of Israel during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. There is no record of that captivity. Now, it's true that Jeremiah prophesied about it, but he did not go with the captives to Babylon. He stayed in Jerusalem. Ezekiel, however, he was in Babylon, but he was prophesying to the captives that were there. Uh, We could only draw by inference the condition of the people. He was concerned more with his visions than he was with their history. And remember, Daniel was there. He was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, But he primarily was prophesying to the uh, kings and the uh, leaders at that time. We have no record from him at all concerning the captives. So the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity are really a period of silence. It It is a vacuum. It is a void as far as the historical books are concerned. Now, the two books of First and Second Kings and then First and Second Chronicles bring us right up to the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. And the next books that you read after that are going to be Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, but nothing mentioned in the gap. It picks up the story after the 70-year captivity is over and the people are back in the land. The captivity in Babylon is passed over because in God's plan, his clock stopped when his people are out of the land. For this reason, we have no record of this period. Uh, This fact gives great emphasis now to Psalm 137 because it is the bridge that connects and tells us what they were feeling and going through. Matter of fact, Psalm 137 is the only one that tells us what they were praying for. And let me draw your attention again um, to verse 8 and 9. They're in Babylon, and um, they're, they're, they're sorrowful. Evidently, their, their captives are extremely cruel to them, severe, and they're making them sing when they sure don't feel like singing. That's the last thing they feel like doing, but that's what they're required to do. And so in verses 1 through 6, um, they're just grieving. They're, they're away from home, and they're homesick, and their enemies are treating them very, very poorly. So now we have the prayer of vengeance, and that's in 8 and 9. And it says, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall be the one who repays you as you served us. In other words, the way you treated us, we're praying that that comes right back on you. And then, this is pretty graphic, happy shall he be who takes away and dashes the little ones against the rock. We're talking about the judgment of Babylon. And I've entitled this this morning, The Two Babylons. And I'll tell you right off the get-go, I stole the title from this book, Alexander Hislop, who wrote The Two Babylons. It is a classic in studying, and I'm going to encourage you to maybe just write this down on your own, because I'm only going to scratch the surface this morning as we talk about The Two Babylons, yet future. 
and I will we'll trace its beginning, we'll trace its fall, and um, having said that, let's go back to the beginning of uh, Babylon. We need to go to Genesis chapter 11. So let's go back there, and we're way back at the beginning where the world is of one language at this time. Let's look at the history and the beginning of Babylon. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they made bricks for stone and had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come and let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top goes to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had made. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, notice that, interesting, let us, the plurality, uh, go down there and confound their language that they do not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, uh, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And we use the term today, don't we? If somebody is rambling on, what do we say? Well, they're just, they're just babbling away. Well, that's, that's where it comes from. The Lord uh, confused them. Nobody could understand one another. And as a result, at that time, it was dispersed. Well, let's take it a step farther. have just a little bit of history here. Let's go to... Um, um, Isaiah chapter 13 and as you're turning let me give you the layout of, of world history men have not been around for millions and millions and millions of years does that surprise you? <laughs> and yet it's, it's uh, you're looked at as an ignoramus today if you say, no, we've only been around for about 6,000 years, and that, you know, we're considered feeble and, and lightheaded if we would make such a statement. But the facts of the matter, and what they can only prove um, through the word of God and through uh, um, the, um, the works in, um, not astro- astronomy, I'm thinking of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Archaeology, thank you. That's exactly the word I was thinking of. Just couldn't pull it out, but there it is. We can only go back to far as Egypt, and that was the first Gentile world government. And then after that, of course, we have the Assyrian Empire. And after the Assyrian, we have now the Babylonian, and that's what we're studying this morning. The Babylonian Empire, Psalm 137, is written in um, Babylon during that 70-year period of time. Now, in Isaiah chapter 
um, 13, we find that Isaiah, if you look at verse 1, the burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Isaiah is now going to prophesy the destruction of Babylon. After Babylon, we're going to have the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we're going to have Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. And then we're going to have the Roman Empire. So in world history, up till this point, there has been six Gentile empires that have dominated the world scene. And in 137, we're in the middle, number three, with Babylon. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Good. Now, if you look at verse 17, um, it says, the, Isaiah is prophesying, he says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, the Medes and the Persians against two, against Babylon, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also, their bows will dash the young men in pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Now, remember Psalm 137, what they were praying for. They, their eye will not spare the children and Babylon and the glory of kingdoms. The beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be gone and overthrown just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited. Now, this is important that you get this one down. This city will never be inhabited again, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. So this is an important verse for our study this morning. Let's go to the night and that um, it actually fell, and there you need to turn to Daniel uh, chapter uh, 5. So let's make our way to Daniel 5, and we'll just read a couple verses. Of course, Daniel was there for the uh, full 70 years. Um, he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of all the empires that would come and go, and we're still waiting for the final one to come on the scene. There is another Babylon that's coming, and it's going to come in the shape of a religious institution, but also a city that's based on economics. Two different cities, two different judgments. They're both called Babylon. Here, when Babylon fell in Daniel's time, if we pick up verse 5, look at uh, verse 22. Now, this guy here named Belshazzar would have been the great grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, Daniel's chewing this guy out. Um, He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar in verse 20 when he got full of pride and his heart was lifted up. Um, The Lord dealt with him. Remember for seven years, his hair grew real long and he went out and lived like a wild man. But then it said he came to his senses and he began to worship the God of heaven. And all of, all of Daniel chapter 4, when you read the whole thing, it's the guy's personal testimony. And he ends his personal testimony by saying, those who are proud, God is able to humble. And he wrote his personal testimony, Daniel chapter 4, to the whole world so that the whole world would know that there's a God who's alive and well. So you want to say amen to that? All right, so Belshazzar knew this. He knew what his great-grandfather went through, and that's why, um, in verse 22, he's chewing him out and by saying, you should have known better. You're, but you, his son, Belshazzar, you haven't humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You knew how God dealt with him. 
And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see, which do not see or hear. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. And so Daniel's really getting on him. And at that moment, a hand appears out of nowhere. And of course, everybody's familiar with this section of the Bible. And it begins to write in the wall, Manny, Manny, Tinkle, you farson. Basically meaning the interpretation was that um, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, as I mentioned to the Medes and the Persians, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar honored Daniel by giving him a robe and a ring and a purple garment and made him ruler over a third of of the kingdom. But that wasn't going to last long because in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So now we have a major move in these Gentile kingdoms. We, We just went from Babylonian into the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's the night that it fell. Uh, When Babylon fell, let me just explain a little bit uh, what what happened. Um, The priest fled, and uh, they ended up in a place called Pergamos. And in Revelation chapter 2, you could just take a note and make a mental note of this, and I'm going to do a little side track at this point because I want to trace uh, Genesis 11 and the foundation of all occultic religious worship that was headquarters in Babylon. The Lord confounded it there. It was here. They had their wise men. They had their astrologers, but they couldn't do what Daniel could do. What happened to them? They weren't killed. Um, In Revelation 2.13, to the church of Pergamos, the Lord said, I know your works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, but you did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Satan's throne somehow made it from Babylon to Pergamos. Now, a guy that um, I've been studying for years and his book called Studies in Revelation, his name is Frank M. Boyd. I call him Old School Assembly, and he's a wonderful Bible teacher, and he, he comments on this transition from Babylon, the, um, the priest, to Pergamos. And bear with me as I read a paragraph from him. He says, the significance of the expression Satan's throne is discovered in the history of Babylonian mystics. Uh, Suffice to say here that Babylon, from the days of Nimrod, was the earthly focal point of Satan's system of religion. The Chaldean priests, Chaldean and Babylonian are interchangeable, 
fleeing from the conquering Persians, took refuge and settled in Pergamos. Their worship consisted in the deification of the empire. Annalus III, the king of Pergamos, was also priest of a cult and willed his title into the hands of the Romans. The title of the Babylonian high priest was Pontifex Maximus, or literally, chief bridge builder. And what that means is the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan. Now, much of Jesus' ministry dealt with this. They were demon-possessed people. I believe there are demon-possessed people today. And somehow there's ways that people can open themselves up either through um, drugs or meditation. There's different ways that it can happen. But um, Julius Caesar was the first one who took the royal priesthood under his title, Pontifus Maximus. Uh, Thus, divine honor was conferred upon Roman emperors, but then it was later passed on to the popes, so that the popes today have this title of uh, Pontifex Maximus. All right, let's see if we can follow where we're going here. Babylon is destroyed. They flee from there, and they end up in this place uh, called Pergamos, which today um, is in modern-day Turkey, and uh, at this time, I'm going to put something on, up on the screen. And what you're looking at here is the temple that existed on Pergamos. Now, I had a deja vu moment like I can't tell you. Uh, one of our trips to Israel, we did the seven churches. And by far and away, uh, the most impressive was Pergamos. It is uh, something that you might want to Google. And... Um, the, the, the ruins there today are incredible. Um, and when I got there, at, I, I looked at this spot and I go, oh my goodness, deja vu. I have been here before. I have seen this. And I could not figure it out, what was happening. And all of a sudden I remembered. I went and I grabbed my Bible and I opened Revelation 2. And it had a picture in my Bible of Pergamos and the, the remains and I was looking at my Bible, and I was looking at the actual place that this temple once stood. Now, one of the most amazing aspects about uh, the papacy is that the Church of Rome promotes the Pope as Pontifex Maximus, or Supreme Pontiff. The title Pontus Maximus is mentioned numerous times by the early Church Fathers, particularly by Tertullian, but it was not applied to the Christian bishops, only the Pope. And the early church fathers say that Pontifus Maximus was the king of heathenism, the evil high priest of the pagan mystic religion of Rome. It is certainly not likely that Christ appointed Peter as Pontifus Maximus of Rome. This picture here, that you're looking at exists to this day, and you can visit it in uh, Greece. Um, In the ancient Greek city of Pergamos, there was a temple to the Greek god Zeus, and the focal point of the temple was a massive altar with a long uh, 
uh, sketch and drawings mural of, um, of what we would call today fallen angels wrestling with each other. And we're going to put that up here next. This is part of what, that is part of the description that is up there. When you read in Revelation 2 concerning the church of Pergamos, you will see that it says it was located where Satan's throne was. And on the left of the altar and below the pillars is the sculpture. It is called the giant um, amography. And it depicts the, the final battle against giants and the Nephilim. It was here that Hitler, Hitler's pulpit that he used for his speeches and the place of his rallies and marches were all designed to replicate this Pergium altar to the detail. So this is actually during World War II where Hitler would have given some of his speeches. Then Babylon moves to Rome. Okay, here's the progression. Babylon falls, moves to Pergamus. Pergamus moves to Rome, and with it, the title Pontius Maximus. So the question is, was Peter really the first pope? That's a question that's a doctrinal issue today. Let's answer it by turning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, in the Catholic Catechism, what I'm about to say, by saying it, I have a curse pronounced upon me, and they say I'm I'm anathema, which means there's no possible way that I could ever make it to heaven by telling you what I'm about to tell you right now. Do I have your curiosity yet? Check it out for yourself. Be a Berean. I just said something that needs to be challenged. Picking it up in verse 13 of chapter 16, beautiful area, Caesarea Philippi. It's in the northern Galilee. It's actually where the Jordan River begins. And it was there in verse 13 that Jesus uh, said to his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And some said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus said, but what about you guys? Who do you think that I am? And it was Peter that answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, well, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. Now the Greek word there, uh, for Peter is uh, Petros, means a stone. And then he says, and on this rock. Now this is a different Greek word. The Greek word here is Petra. And instead of a stone, we're talking the rock of Gibraltar. Here again, I challenge you to be Bereans to see if what I just said is, is factual or not. And I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One or two possibilities. Roman Catholicism says that this is a scripture that declares that Peter is the first Maximus Pontifus, the supreme uh, father of the church on planet Earth. Or, if you turn the page to chapter 18, verse 18, I believe what is being said here is Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, the church is going to be built on me the solid rock, not you, Peter, but the church, Jesus Christ is the rock, and it's on that the church will be built. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? 
And to prove my point, if you look at chapter 18, verse 18, he repeats word for word what he said to Peter, but he's saying it to all of the disciples. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is not exclusive to Simon Peter, but to all the disciples. This authority was given to them. I make a point of it today because what's happening in our world today is a move back to Rome. And uh, what's making news this week, and one of the reasons we're doing 137 instead of 139 is because what happened on Wednesday and what happened yesterday with the Pope in the Middle East. The Vatican announced, now this was Wednesday, that it had brokered a treaty with the state of Palestine upsetting the Israeli advocates and propelling uh, Pope Francis into the heart of yet another uh, geographical uh, fray. Now, do you understand that Rome um, and uh, the Vatican is a nation unto itself? Everybody aware of that? And so they brokered a deal. They have their own post office and so on and so forth. They publicly acknowledged this on Wednesday that they're making this deal um, with um, uh, those living in Samaria and Palestine. Well, that was Wednesday's news. This was yesterday's news. Yesterday, Pope Francis met with Palestinian Authority President Abbas and called him the Angel of Peace. And right now, as I speak today, they're deifying two nuns that lived in the 1800s, and they're going to become saints. And, of course, um, to uh, this group here, I don't need to explain that there's no such thing as saints, that you're just as much a saint as anybody else that's born again. Amen? Amen. So there isn't people that go through a process that you are to pray to, and it is clearly not biblical. But this pope also is making major concessions this week. Uh, Just recently he said if someone is gay and and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Quote, unquote. Um, uh, Just last year, Pope Francis and Rick Warren united for a global Chrislam conference. So now we have America's pastor joining joining hands with the Pope uh, to bring about and what what we know to be true and where I'm trying to get at is we're headed on a fast track to a one world religion. And I just want to show you where it starts and where it's headed. But um, our American's pastor, the next picture I want to put up is what took place just, uh, just recently. This is um, Elton John and Rick Warren. Now, um, Elton John got married to David Furick December 21st, 2014. He invited the whole world to the wedding. And now we have uh, American's pastor, and uh, this is one of the comments that uh, Rick Warren made. He says, the two made uh, such a great team uh, taking on global health issues that they smiled and they laughed and they held hands as a show of unity and and later, Warren reportedly joked about kissing John, which he said would probably be the kiss heard around the world. Well, a lot of people laughed, but I don't think it's very funny. 
It's not just the holding of hands that's a red flag here. It's the fact that Rick Warren is supposed to be a Christian pastor and should teach the truth in the Bible about the sin of homosexuality. One wrote online, the Bible is clear, the sin of homosexuality leads to hell, and preachers should not follow God's, should follow God's word rather than pander to the lusts of the world, or want a photo op and a selfie with Elton John. That's happening, and we see more coming together as more and more churches are buckling under the pressure, compromising with the word of God for the sake of uh, unity. And the, the, a trend that you might want to follow on your own, there's prominent people like Kenneth Copeland, the Anglican Church, that are making their way back to Rome and say we should be under the authority of the Holy uh, Roman Catholic Church and the Pope as its leader. What can we do? Well, let our voices be heard, expose the evil deeds of darkness with the glorious light of God's word. Lovingly confront those who are promoting the emergent church and embracing Roman Catholicism as a valid expression of Christianity. Call Roman Catholicism what it is, a false religious system that is holding over one billion people in bondage and deception. Now, this is happening, and it's a trend that's happening across the country today. Emergent church leaders, um, the title is Bringing um, Protestants Back to Rome. And various pastors are giving their testimony, how they're leaving their denomination, and are once again joining hands with Roman Catholicism. All that was sort of an introduction. Remember Psalm 137 is a prayer for judgment against Babylon? All right, now we need to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. The Bible predicts that Babylon will be built again. And as you look, we find the two witnesses have been killed in Revelation 12. If you look at verse 8, we have the angels now preaching the gospel. But in verse 8, it says, another angel followed in heaven, saying, Babylon is fallen. Now, in order for Babylon to fall, it has to be in existence during the tribulation period. And it's fallen, it's called that great city, so it's a city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I'm going to camp on the word fornication here for a second and tell you there's two different kinds. In chapter 17, the fornication is a spiritual fornication. And it ties in with the book of Thyatira, where you allow that woman Jezebel to teach things that are not biblical and doctrinal. And so the idea here is that God is going to bring judgment because of the false doctrine within this religious institution. He calls it fornication. Now, if you look down at verse, so let's see. Let me check my notes here real quick. Verse eight, picking it up, let's go to um, chapter 17 and verses one through six. Chapter 17 is a chapter 
And we'll pick up and read the first six verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the judgment, this is Psalm 137 now, of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in his spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Uh, before I read any longer, I'm going to put a picture of her up on the screen. What you're looking at here. This woman riding the beast is the official symbol of today's uh, Europe. You could easily find that on, on a postage stamp or a coin. And the uh, structure outside the parliament building and the symbolic heart of Revelation 17. The beast she is riding on is Zeus of mythology, Zeus's altar I showed you in Berlin. And so here we're connecting some dots. Back to now verse 5. And on her forehead was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now we're told down here in verse 15 that uh, this organization, the the waters were multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so we find that's exactly what has happened in Roman Catholicism. They have branched over all over the world, every nation, every language and tongue, has been polluted uh, with the spiritual fornication of false doctrine. Now, John sees this, and he can't figure it out. If you look at verse 6, remember John's being shown this revelation, and he said, I saw the woman, and she was drunk with the blood of the saints, And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw it, I marveled with great amazement. Question, why is John marveling so much? Because this was the church. But what was the church supposedly doing? Actually killing the Christians. And John says, what is this? And he marveled with great amazement that this organization was actually um, drunk with uh, the, the martyrs And boy, can I get sidetracked here, and I have to uh, limit myself for time. Let me just quote W.H. Lakey in his book. And again, do your homework. I challenge you. uh, A good resource also is Dave Hunt's work, The Woman Who Rides the Beast. But here's a fact of history. The Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution among mankind. Would you let that settle in just for a second? Remember I told you this is a study that I don't want to give, like Jeremiah. I don't want to do this, but I have to, and I have no joy in my heart for doing it. Just like Jeremiah, it's sorrowful, because God is going to bring judgment on this institution, what we're going to find very shortly here. Numbering between 50 and 120 million over the the years, that's how many people have been put to death. Um through Roman Catholicism. If you go down to verse 15, it tells us, again, that 
this institution is all over the world. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot and make war and to make her desolate. So let's, let's put it together this way. The rapture of the church has taken place. All true born-again believers are gone. There's a vacuum. But there's still a religious institution. Do you realize that after the rapture, there's still going to be a lot of Christians left here who call themselves Christians? Doesn't the Lord say in that day, but Lord, we did this, we did that, we did the other thing? And the Lord says, yeah, but I never knew you. And there's a lot of people that are going to be shell-shocked someday because they know about him, but they don't know him in that personal way, like the butterfly that has to be born again. That change, that mortemephasis has to happen in your life, and then you get it. And until you're born again, gang, you're not going to get it. It's going to make no sense to you whatsoever. When people say, well, this is what the Lord showed me or, or whatever, it's going to go right over your head. But anybody who's born again, you can sit down and have fellowship with them, and you know exactly what they're talking about, and you can relate and have fellowship one with another. And as Jesus says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son and with one another. What happens to this institution is that the Antichrist will only allow himself to be worshipped. There's an organization headquartered in Rome that's receiving worship. It's got to be dealt with. So we read that this beast and the ten kings make war against this woman. And verse 17 says, For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give the kingdom to the beast. See, the beast is the Antichrist. And till the words of God are fulfilled, so the beast and the kings ruling with him are going to destroy this institution. Verse 18 tells us where it is. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. When John wrote this, he was living during the time of the Roman Empire. It can only be one place, gang, and that place happens to be Rome. Slam dunk. End of discussion. Be a Berean, but that's exactly when this was written in 96 AD. The headquarters of the world happened to be in Rome. God's judgment on the spiritual fortification, uh, speaking, that's one issue. Chapter 18 is a different city, and now I'm going to switch gears and talk about literal physical fornication, as in, in sexuality, okay? Let's pick it up. Chapter 18, the first three verses. After this, in other words, after that one was gone, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It has become a habitation of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So here is the other Babylon. It also is a city. It is a city that is extremely opulent and luxurious. And if you go down to verse 9, 
And uh, the reason we're doing, uh, again, this study this week is because something that I read about the UN um, wanting to move to Dubai. It already has an invitation from Dubai to move there. Now bear with me as I make my way up. A good resource, um, this has been in my back pocket for 10 years now, as I've been just kind of watching things unfold. When I heard that Dubai was building the tallest building in the world, you know what I thought of? Genesis chapter 11 and building the tower. And then I thought that when the Antichrist comes, isn't he going to want to do the same thing? Bring all the world under his rulership. And why not have it be the tallest building in the world? There's a gentleman by the name of Greg C. White. He's written a book since I've had my own theories about Dubai that's called Dubai, A Case for Mystery Babylon. Let me just read a paragraph uh, from his book. In Revelation 17, 18, we learn that Mystery Babylon the Great is a city that exists the same time as the final Gentile world empire. Remember I told you there was six, but there's one more that is coming that the Antichrist will rule over. He's the seventh and the final one that Daniel saw. And the new world order. Well, Bush, we can go back to George W. And he began talking back then about a new world order that is on the horizon. And I believe we're watching it unfold exponentially. And so, um, mystery here isn't a Greek word translated into English. It's a Greek word simply said in English, mysterion, meaning something that has not been previously known before. Let me give you an example. When Paul spoke to the church at Corinth about the rapture, he says, I'm going to tell you a mysterion. In other words, something that's never been heard or taught before. And it was the rapture. I'll tell you a mystery. It's the same word here. Uh, He's saying, I'm going to show you something that has not been previously known about a certain city. However, in its time it will become known or understood. Well, this is what Daniel said. Daniel wanted to know more. He says, go your way, Daniel. Certain things are going to be shut up and sealed until the time of the end. But then many will travel to and fro. Knowledge will increase. None of the wicked shall understand these things, but those who are wise, they'll, they'll see it and they'll understand. What's your point, Dwight? That Dubai did not exist 35 years ago. Simply did not exist. It wasn't even on the radar. And I believe this is one of the things that Daniel was talking about. All of a sudden, it's going to appear and you're going to get it and have understanding of it. And so Mystery Babylon probably isn't the original city of Babylon. I remember getting so excited when Saddam Hussein began building Babylon again. And some of you old-timers might remember me giving Bible studies. I said, there it is, it's happening. And then what happened? Well, we had a war in Iraq. And they took care of Saddam Hussein their own way, didn't they? So that didn't happen, and it's not happening. The fact of the matter is, it would have to be something, if it's going to fulfill Revelation 18, it would have to be something a lot more than what Saddam Hussein was doing. So, it does, this city is going to have the same characteristics as Genesis 11. We'll learn more about uh, the founding of, of this city. At this time, I'm going to begin to wind up and make a case that the city that we have in view here, 
Let's pick it up in verse 9. It's going to be judged. Psalm 137 is about the judgment of Babylon, past tense. These verses have not yet been fulfilled, but I believe the stage is set for them to be fulfilled. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. And they'll be standing at a distance for fear of torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, it is a city, that mighty city, for in one hour her judgment has come. All the merchants, notice, of the earth will weep and mourn over her. No one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, incense, frankincense, oil, wine, and oil, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, chariots, and this here underlined, and the body and the souls of men. Remember that. And the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things that are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more. And the merchants of these things, who became rich by her, will stand at a distance for fear of her torment. Sounds nuclear to me. Weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, a great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and with gold and precious stones, in just one hour, such great riches came to nothing. And every shipmaster that has to be a port city came to nothing. And all who travel by sea, the sailors, as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour is she made desolate. My noggin got going when I heard that Dubai was going to build the tallest building in the world. They did it, and this is what it looks like. I hear there's one in in the making that they're going to try to make bigger, maybe down in Saudi Arabia. But at, for, for right now, uh, we'll show this particular picture. The second thing that it has is that uh, it's seaport. Now remember, this city did not exist 35 years ago, okay? Now here's the seaport. Do you know that it's the ninth largest one in the world and it didn't even exist 35 years ago? And um, the next one is it has the world's second largest airport. And here's a picture of that. And the third busiest airport in what, 35 years? That's in Dubai. Number eight, it, it built its own Disneyland. It's called the Falcon City of Wonders. It was announced in 2005 It is a project being built in Dubai that will feature life-size replica of the seven wonders of the world, such as the Egyptian pyramids, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, um, Eiffel Tower, the Taj Mahal, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's part of Dubai land. 
instead of Disneyland, they call it Dubai land, covers an area of 100 acres at an estimated cost of $36.5 billion. Number nine, it has the world's largest shopping mall. So much for Mall America up in Minnesota, huh? <laughs> they just got knocked down a notch. The world's largest shopping mall. I watched, a, you can go online and watch and take a tour of Dubai, which I did this week. And um, in this shopping mall, they have 1,200 shops. And it is only the rich, the wealthiest of the wealthiest um, that, that shop there. And again, this is something that you can Google and find for yourself. The world's largest shopping mall, it has a ski hill in it, so you can actually go skiing uh, in, in the desert in the middle of summer. And then finally, this is called Palm Island. Uh, years ago, I watched a program called Modern Marvels, how they built this. And they're basically extending um, uh, their beach property. And each one of these um, palm branches has multi-million dollar villas and the wealthiest of the wealthy hang out there. And none of this, again, existed 35 years ago. But what it's primarily known for is the souls and trading of men. And I want to go back to uh, chapter 18 where it talks about the souls of men. You know what Dubai is really known for? Prostitution. Prostitution. Um, Prostitution is embedded in every pore of Dubai's society. These women are also enslaved. Prostitutes can be found in bars, hotel lobbies, restaurants, malls, gift shops, beaches, gas stations, grocery stores, labor camps, and everywhere else. Sex trafficking rings, notice, are sanctioned by the government. So it's actually something that the government supports. Uh, Their presence um, entices the rich and the powerful local citizens and visitors into Dubai's opulent net. Top of the client list are Saudi Emirates, then Europeans and Americans, but there are many others, and you can read more and, and find more out about them. I remember one time when we had Pilgrim's Cafe, I overheard, how's my time doing? I got a little bit of time. I heard a couple, and I heard the guy say that he grew up in Dubai. And that captured my curiosity. And I said, can I talk to you just for a couple minutes? You grew up in Dubai. What's it like growing up in Dubai? And he said, oh, that's easy. He says, imagine Wall Street, Vegas, and Hollywood, and throw them all together and you got Dubai. And then he said, anything you want, you can get in Dubai. The other thing that is not reported is that there are Americans that are over there right now who've lost their passport, and they can't get out of the country. There's 300,000 people who live one hour out of town in labor camps that don't have running water. It's 120 degrees during the day, and they're bused back and forth each day for the labor of this city. And again, these are things that uh, you can and can research and look upon. But the Lord is saying that these two Babylons, both are going to be judged, and this one 
when it talks about come out of her and don't be a part of her fornications. 17 is spiritual. 18 is literal. I believe it's literal fornication and that is what it's known for. And um, you go, my goodness, wait. Um, You said it was going to be a heavy study, but I didn't think you were going that far. Um, but this is, this is what got my attention uh, this, this week. And that was, this is Forbes magazine. It's moved the UN to Dubai. I wish I had time to read this entire article to you because it makes perfect sense to move the UN out of New York to Dubai. I'm only going to read the last paragraph, but you can also Google this. Bringing the United Nations to Dubai makes sense. New York gets rid of one of the worst welfare cheats, and Dubai finds new tenants to fill its vacant towers. Dubai has already built something that looks like part of the 21st century world capital. Uh, Let it get a cast appropriate for its glittering sect. They already have invited them to make the move. And I told you on Wednesday, if I found research on this, that this was indeed actually in the process, that I would revisit this and be a little bit more probably dogmatic that Dubai is, in the last 35 years, what I believe to become um, uh, what we refer to in the Bible as Babylon. Let's turn to Romans 13 as we begin to close up this morning. Romans 13, verse 11, and also... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Romans 13, verse 11. The Lord judged Babylon in the past. He did it miraculously. Hand comes out of nowhere and says, your history. Well, if he did it in the past, I believe he's going to do it again in the future. He's going to judge Babylon. And much of the world doesn't have a clue because we're preoccupied with everyday life. But Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, do this. He says, knowing the time, that it's high time you wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we first believed. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I believe Jesus is coming for his church really soon. So you want to say amen? And... Um, There are those who say, well, you have these heavy Bible studies and you just want to escape all this stuff that's coming on this world. And yeah, I do, actually. (laughs) I sure do. And I don't want none of my friends to go through what I know is coming down the pike. But it's not the reason that I say Jesus is coming again. It's not a theological debate as far as I'm concerned. To me, it's a love issue. And the fact that we believe that God, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, God has not appointed us to wrath. Church, that's you. My wrath, my sin, was taken out on a cross on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And um, it doesn't need to be repeated again. This period of time are those who have rejected the Lord, and it is the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation, verse 6. That's what this period of time is. And then it says in verse 11, because God has not appointed us to wrath. Verse 11 says, Therefore, let us scare each one another to death with these things, just as you are doing. 
that what it says? No. Because the Lord is going to deliver you and because we love him, it's not an escapism type issue. To me, it's the very nature and character of my husband-to-be. I'm the bride. And his nature now is called into question if he's dragging me into the tribulation for the honeymoon. Are you tracking with me on this? So that's why it says, therefore comfort one another and edify one another just as you are doing. But gang, unless you know what to look for, as it says, it's time we wake up, we realize that these things are happening. And um, as, as I see these events, events unfold, I do want the Lord to come back, but not because I want to escape that. I just want to be with him because I love him. I'm going to leave it on a personal note of our, all of us have been shell-shocked this week at Calvary Chapel around the valley. Those of you that attended um, Olivia and John's funeral at Calvary Bible, or at least you've heard about it, uh, know that a lot of us have been shell-shocked. I was given an article um, that I'm going to read a paragraph that Olivia Stoffel wrote to her guidance counselor at school. And um, her name is Robin Matz. Uh, I guess she's the daughter of Dwayne Matz from the WEMI. And uh, I'm just going to read one paragraph. They, they got together and would have lunch together, Olivia and Robin. And one day, Olivia comes in. She's just 11 years old, fourth grade. And um, Robin writes this. She says, during one of our lunches, Olivia came in and sat down with a sigh and said something like, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. And my response was concern, assuming that she must have been having a rough day. But the more I came to know Olivia, the more I realized her statement was less about the typical trials of a fourth grader's day and more about her genuine love for her Savior and the joy that it brought her to think about being with him. Little did I know the peace, her attention, getting statement would bring me a little over a year later. You know, yes, I want Jesus to return, but not because we're going to escape all these things. I simply love the Lord and want to be with him. Somebody might say amen to that. And so having said that, mixed emotions, because I feel more like Jeremiah this morning. And um, having to give, as we go through God's word, saying judgment is coming. It's coming upon this nation too. And, and it's only a matter of time. And Jeremiah had to do it in his generation. And guys, as we teach through the Bible, I can't sugarcoat it. I can't say it isn't here. I can't skip over 137 and put it in context and try to explain the big picture. And again, it's high time a lot of us wake up and we realize what's really important, put our house in order, and making sure that we're not just saying we're seeking first the kingdom of heaven, but we're actually really doing it. Amen? I'm past my time. We better stand up and pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for helping us get through a difficult study on judgment. But Lord, your word is clear about past, present, and future judgments on Babylon. And we know, Lord, that judgment, according to your word, begins first in the house of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us get our own houses in order. 
And Lord, as the Holy Spirit searches our hearts, that we won't put up wrestling matches with what you're wanting to do in and through us. Lord, give us this childlike heart that Olivia had of just simply wanting to be with you because we love you. But also be aware and um, aware of the times in which we live so that we can share with others what's happening from a biblical perspective. These things we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.